This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Good morning, Equalizer Extra subscribers. It's time for another episode of the Equalizer Podcast. Welcome to episode 49 of the Equalizer podcast. I'm Chelsea Bush. With me is Claire Watkins and John Halloran. And we're here to talk about all things WOSO. Lots of uh, international things going on right now before the NWSL preseason kicks off tomorrow. Obviously, um, the big one is kind of the She Believes Cup. Um, interestingly enough, the U.S. has not won yet. They've, they've had two draws. They are in third place. Um should Japan or England win in their match on, um, I think it's Tuesday, they'll they'll win the tournament. Should they draw and the U.S. wins over Brazil, which I think everyone agrees is probably likely, the U.S. will, will defeat Brazil. Uh, the U.S. could uh, then win. There's there's some things that, that would have to happen. Um, so, yeah, hasn't quite gone like uh, they, they planned. So, uh, John, what, what are your thoughts on the U.S.'s performance so far? I don't think they've been good. Uh, you know, I think for me, a lot of it goes to uh, head coach Jill Ellis. I think that she's made some decisions that have probably hindered the team from getting the best out of their talent, whether that's going with uh, two attacking-minded center midfielders in Pew and Lavelle and not bringing a player like Mewis in with Haran out injured, or whether that's um, tinkering with you know, going to that five back, which they've now done in both games, which I really don't understand. I think the players seem a little confused about their roles out there. Um, and I don't think that we've seen the best of, of this team because, you know, for that very long year and a half stretch, um, we did see what the U.S. could do when they were when they were firing on all cylinders. And, uh, and we certainly have not seen that over this past week. Yeah, I kind of think they've they've kind of regressed a little bit. Like, I don't think it's just a matter of, well, if, you know, if you plug Becky Sauerbrunn in the back line and you plug Lindsey Horan and plays for Mallory Pugh in the midfield, then everything's going to click. I don't think, I mean, I think that particularly I think midfield's a problem, and I think this is a case of Jill once again trying to get players onto the field regardless of where they are. I, I think that's a strategy she's, you know, I think that's kind of how Crystal Dunn ended up back at left back. Um, and I, I don't think it's a recipe for success. I don't think that's how you should select your starting 11, uh, particularly, you know, as you pointed out, the midfield is, is not only is Pew, I mean, she, her form has not been good for quite some time. Uh, so she, she's 
you know, being rewarded for playing poorly when there are players on the bench that I think we can all agree when Sam Mewis came into the game against England, that game changed um, for the better. And, and so I don't, I just, I just find it very, they're very, very frustrating that players like Sam Mewis and Casey Short can't just, they're scrambling for minutes over and over and over again. And I don't know if there's something in training that she doesn't like, because I feel like when they take the pitch, when we see them, I feel like they do a good job, right? Well, and yeah, I think it's twofold. I think it's exactly what you're saying, Chelsea, where um, the selection is odd. But also, yeah, like what John was saying, the the formation switches and pulling Julie Ertz back in between the center backs so there's no one in the sixth role and then having the outside backs push forward but then not spread out behind them so the flanks are completely exposed and then you've got the outside backs kind of moving in more centrally because they feel like they have to fill the space left by Ertz and it's it's a mess and I don't understand it they I think they were having some good success with that idea of kind of a swinging defense that maybe left more of a traditional three back as opposed to four but this new wrinkle of pushing Ertz back into the defense while also not even while still not covering the ground that they need to cover and just leaving acres of space in the middle of the field it seems so unnecessary to me maybe that's the thing that really I'm confused about is I don't understand why they're introducing this at all. And it definitely is a switch that we've seen from the start of 2019. And I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. It reminds me of, um, and you know, maybe some warning bells in, in this kind of thing, but it reminds me of what we saw sometimes before the Olympics in 2016, where Jill Ellis would talk a lot about trying things out like, you know, the nuclear Tobin Heath at right back scenario and I remember watching those friendlies before the Olympics and thinking, why are they ever going to need this? This actively is making the team more confused and it's not working to their strengths. And to that point, I think that you saw, you know, everyone's head started spinning and, and things got, you know, got really complicated there once they went into that tournament. And so I, uh, for me, the selection stuff, I guess I've maybe learned to live with when it comes to Ellis, but yeah, I don't understand what she's telling them to do. Well, and to, to me, too, when she switches into that formation, you that leaves Mallory Pugh and Rose Lavelle as sort of a dual pivot. And it, it reminds me a lot of when they, she tried, when they tried um, Lauren Holiday and Carly Lloyd as a dual pivot. Like, why? Right. And then these are actually with, with midfielders who are not as, neither one as good as Lauren Holiday, and, and certainly not as, as gritty and willing to stick in that we need in that role, uh, which I think Megan Rapino apparently alluded to in some post-game comments that, that the midfield needed to be a little bit more gritty or grittier. I'm not really sure what the word is there. Anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, it just doesn't, uh, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not opposed to trying out new formations for, for whatever reason. I think um, switching, you know, defensive formations late in the game if you're down it isn't uncommon, and I don't mind them trying that out. But it, it's not clearly not working, and I don't think she's, I think she's setting them up for failure with with the selection that she has. Yeah, I think specifically, I, if I was going to pinpoint the players that I think are really struggling to figure this out, I think especially 
Saturday's game, I thought Julie Ertz looked confused. I thought Crystal Dunn looked really confused. And I thought that Mallory Pugh looked really confused. And I think that for whatever reason, Kelly O'Hara was able to adapt to the idea a little bit more. But um, those three players in particular just looked like they didn't know what they were doing, which is too bad because that's a lot of natural talent that was kind of aimless for the whole game. You know, I think that uh, Chelsea brought up a good point, too, about Mallory Pugh um, and her form, because for whatever reason, I think that's really just flown under the radar, that she's just kind of not been great, and nobody's really pointed that out, uh, right? you know, at least, it's it's not at the forefront of the discussion. Right, um, and she's in, starting in every game right now. Yeah, and you know, and even when she plays on the wing, she hasn't been great, yeah. and it just doesn't make a lot of sense, and I don't know, you know... Some of that is, is probably the situation that you have, that you have Heath and Rapino, and then after that, it's kind of a crapshoot in those wide positions because they haven't really looked at anyone other than Heath, Rapino, Pew, and Press. But um, it does; it is kind of a head scratcher, and, and she's not playing well. Uh, she hasn't played well for quite some time on any sort of consistent level, and yet she continues to get chances where. Other players that we've mentioned, you know, whether that's Mewis or Short, um, no matter how well they play in the league, uh, don't seem to get the, any opportunities. Or if they do, they're on a, a pretty short lease uh, in terms of, you know, mistakes or how much of an opportunity they get before they get yanked. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my pet my pet thought about Pew is I think that she is a player that desperately needs coaching. And I'm not sure ever since she went pro that she's received a ton of that, um, either at Washington or for the from the U.S. Um, she looks like a player that has simply plateaued because she can't. She's not being taught anything from a young age, and she's having trouble coming up with those ideas herself. Um, and I guess speaking of short leashes and players getting chances, Ad French played a game. And there were some ups and downs to that. Uh, I'll kick that to you, Chelsea. What do you think of uh, Francis' first cap? I was glad to see her get it. You know, it's it does, however, bring up sort of a nightmare scenario that we've all been waiting on. Like, Ellis has put all of her eggs into the Nair basket. And what if this had happened three months down the road? You know, you have, at that point, maybe French hadn't gotten a cap. Or you have Ashton Harris, who hasn't played in months either. Um, so I was glad to see, see her get a cap, even if it was... And Ellis made that very clear that it was not planned. She she was going to give all the caps to Nair. Um, it doesn't sound like we are also going to see Nair in the next game. Um, it wasn't great. Uh, she She's pretty much directly at fault for giving up the opportunity for that first goal. I mean, that's kind of it's kind of goalkeeping 101, right? No matter how bad the back pass is, you, you don't pick it up. Uh, and they, they've been guilty of some really poor back passes this entire tournament, haven't they? Yeah. Um, so I think that was just another example, but yeah, you don't, you don't pick it up. So I think, you know, that was clearly nerve. She obviously knows that she, she knows not to do that. Whether that my, my concern here is this going to be first cap nerves, which is perfectly understandable. Got to get it out of the way at some point, or is this kind of what we've seen with Nair um, in sort of not making sort of that transition to the senior level? I, I don't know. Um, the, the goal itself, she couldn't have done anything on that, that, Ben that Steph Houghton put on that kick was just absolutely gorgeous. Um, I, I do think, and I think John has some thoughts on this, that she definitely could have done a little bit better on the second goal, too. Yes. Yeah, I thought she made two mistakes. And again, listen, the defense made a mistake, too, right? I mean, there's, you know, um, 
player ends up all alone on, on your goalkeeper, obviously a lot of things have, are going wrong at that moment. But um, number one, she should have taken one or maybe two steps further out to cut that angle down. And then I think the second part of that is her getting caught in between two minds. It kind of looked like she thought she might want to drop on the ball and then she thought she might want to kick save. And so she just kind of stood there. Um, and, you know, I, I can tell you that happens as a player where you, you, you have two thoughts in your head at the same time and you do neither. Um, so it's unfortunate and it's, it's, I guess, doubly unfortunate that it happens in her debut. And, you know, I, it, as you mentioned, it was a long awaited cap and a, it was a much anticipated cap. People want to see her get an opportunity, especially knowing that, you know, um, Nayer has had her bad moments and, um, I, I can't say that France took advantage of it, both with the mistake that you mentioned and then, um, she could have done better on the second goal as well. Yeah, and I think, I mean, unfortunately for French, I don't think, regardless of how she played, it was ever going to really change a whole lot. Nair is clearly the number one keeper. Maybe there's some depth chart movement down the line. It, I don't think that really matters, honestly. I don't think Ellis gives a huge <laughs> issue to who's her number two and her number three keeper because she's very much focused on her number one. But I want to go back to, to what you said there, John, because I think it's important that she definitely was hung out to dry by her defense, which is kind of what we've seen with Nair too. So it's like a combination of the defense not doing their job. And, you know, Claire, also you mentioned that, that Crystal Dunn looked confused. I just don't think this has been a great tournament for Dunn. And in fact, I think she's definitely kind of cooled down in her form um, over, you know, certainly this year, if maybe the, the last few games of last year, she, she doesn't, hasn't quite figured out, you know, when to push forward and when to pull back and, I mean, she hasn't played the role in a while, but she did come up as an outside back. Like, let's not forget that. She's not a brand new conversion, I think. But we've seen her get burned on, on multiple occasions this tournament, and two of those have been for goals. And that's, that's something that concerns me because I feel like what we're seeing in this tournament is nearly every time the U.S. defense makes a mistake, it ends up in a goal. It's not that they make a mistake and, and um, you know, there's a close chance. Like, a goal is given up. Like that's not a good, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but um, trend maybe. Right. It's the idea. And I think Ellis kind of both Ellis and Rapino kind of alluded to this after the second game, which was they're making mistakes, but that's why they're giving up two goals a game. <laughs> you know, you can, you can say, Oh, you know, the French thing, it was just a mistake or, you know, look at the sequence that broke down for the second England goal, but it's happening every game and it's happening in, in these multitudes and it is kind of that thing I, I forget I think a number of people said it after the game was over which is it's one thing to talk about mistakes to learn from but you have to learn from them and this is the point where I think the U.S. is going to have to take some of these performances and look to improve and it, it does go back to what you're saying about bad like bad back passes that comes from a lack of timing or being slow to step up to, you know, attacking, you know, challenging, challenging attackers, or um, even as Rapino advocated for making tactical fouls, there's this, it's timing, the timing is off. And this is where I also don't know if that's going to improve once these players are back in season. I feel like that's, you know, just an undercurrent to the whole thing as well, though I don't know how much weight to put on it. Can I yeah, add one I'm thing about uh, done too. Yeah, the um, I think a, a lot of this is the the combination that she's formed with Davidson right now is just not working. Um, in that, 
for whatever reason, that that communication piece is not there because there were at least three times in these two games in which it was very clear that neither of them knew who was going to pick up a runner who, who was kind of in that channel between them. Um, and that, you know, whether that's because Davidson is just working back into the fold, um, because we know that she can play at a high level, you know, when, when she's fit and in form. And obviously, you know, she had a serious injury in the fall that she's still working back from. But, uh, you know, and maybe that'll get better when Sauerbrunn gets back in there with Dunn. But th- that was an issue when I watched both the Japan game and the England game was watching anytime attackers came down uh, the U.S.'s left side that they really seemed to struggle with understanding who was going to pick up uh, those runners in that channel. Yeah, well, we'll have to see if that improves against Brazil uh, coming up, although I think we can all agree that is certainly not going to be the same uh, same challenge that England-Japan provided. But we'll, we'll come back to that more on that later in our, our second session. Welcome back to episode 49 of the Equalizer podcast. Chelsea, Claire, and John are here. Um, before we jump into all the international fun that's gone on over the last week, I, I do want to very much tell anyone listening that if you haven't already, please like and subscribe, rate and review on iTunes. Um, that helps get our, our rating up and helps dis- the distribution and just helps all around. Um, so please, if you like the product we're putting out there, support us in that way. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, lots of international games going on. Australia is is cruising pretty easily, as, as we expected, to win their inaugural Cup of Nations over South Korea, New Zealand, and Argentina. I think that uh, South Korea and New Zealand seem to be battling that out for second place, and then second, third, and poor Argentina is just not doing that well. Um, any thoughts on that? Um, none other than I don't think anyone expected Australia to struggle, um, and they haven't. They've been playing quite well. Uh, similar similar stuff to what we've seen in the past, though obviously this is their first tournament with the new coach. Um, some of their selections been a little bit different, but seems like Sam Kerr's run of form has continued, and their defense is improving. So uh, it's small sample size, but it looks like, uh, looks like Australia is in pretty good shape. New Zealand is interesting to me, even just in the recent news that Rosie White is um, taking the time off before the World Cup, um, taking time off from the NWSL at least. Uh, I wonder, I, I'm very interested just to see what ambitions they have, obviously with Tom Sermani leading them. Um, but it definitely seems like kind of the ranking order from that area of the world is, is pretty well set. Yeah, I, I wrote about the new coach and I kind of you know indicated that it was go one of two ways, whether they would really just step up like they have something to prove or they, they would just kind of regress as sometimes teams do when they're, there's a coaching change that they weren't really behind. And it does seem like they've they've taken the opportunity to prove themselves, so I'm, I'm very glad to see. Um, they, we also have the Algarve going on right now. Canada um, is, is leading their group. They've won one, drawn one, but in the two games with Iceland and Scotland, they have not scored from the run of play. Their only goal was a penalty kick. They've been playing um, a three-back with Sophie Schmidt in it, 
which is an interesting choice <laughs> to say the least, right? Yeah, Canada is also interesting to me because they also have a new coach and they probably are figuring out exactly what their tactical approach is going to be against it seems like against everybody. I mean, it seems like probably their strategy is one that would find more success against teams with higher talent level than theirs. But um, it, it seems like they're sticking with that same style of play that we saw in the CONCACAF championship last fall against the U.S. That was a 2-0 game. And I think a lot of people said um, the way Canada was playing, it was like they were playing for 2-0 instead of maybe a more open, you know, 5-3 to three or 4 to whatever. Um and I think that that's interesting because in general, I do like these teams that come in with strong, compact lines and they're very disciplined in space, but Canada has no attacking options right now. Um, and it looks like they have almost conceded that point and aren't looking for attacking options other than just hoping that, you know, Christine Sinclair can come up with some magic. But it's, I think that Canada is taking a stance going into this World Cup that they have analyzed that their talent doesn't necessarily match up to the world's best, and so this is their approach. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I think Canada's been overrated for a while. Um, they've, they've sort of, of over-exceeded it. You know, I don't think that's the right word again, but, you know, they've done well at the Olympics and probably maybe better than they should have. But, uh, yeah, I, I was at uh, the final, the CONCACAF final, and I was just not impressed with them, like, whatsoever. At no point did they look threatening. And I think there's something to be said for defense, but I, I agree, Claire, that there's no attack. They're, they're hoping Sinclair's going to pull something out of her rear, which I'm sure kind of pisses her off because <laughs> she's been, she carried Canada for a long time, and they have talent. And, you know, you've got Janine Becky playing a wingback, and the further I... I I strongly maintain this point that the further you pull Janine Becky from goal, the less effective she is. She needs to be up front paired with Sinclair. Like that is where you're going to get the most out of her. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think this is a recipe for success for them. So, you know, uh, good luck in the quarterfinals um, elsewhere at the Algarve. Um, so Poland and Spain are tied for their group with, with uh, Poland actually uh, defeating Spain three to nothing, which I think we can all agree is not something we we thought we'd see from sort of a surging Spain. And then the Netherlands uh, has not done well in that group there at the bottom. Um, China's gotten pretty well spanked by Norway, and Denmark Norway's doing doing pretty well. And then Portugal and Sweden are actually tied for the lead in their group over Switzerland. So I think there's a lot. I think this is a very very interesting Algarve. This is not the results I, I thought I would see. From some of these teams, I thought the Netherlands would do better. I, I can name like one Polish player, so I'm, I'm interested <laughs> to see them kind of doing their thing. Like, get it, Poland? I'm I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, Portugal is another one who I, you know, Sweden's kind of been really up and down for a long time, but that's to me an interesting result. So uh, that is still ongoing in their their new weird format. So we'll have to kind of see how that right. shakes out because I, I think it's anyone's tournament at this point in time. Well, and it, it's, it just speaks to this larger thing, which is always in the background when we talk about the U S too, which is the, you watched, if you watch the first two U S she believes games against Japan and England, two of which are prominent on the world stage, they're top 10 teams in the world. Um, you, if you watched those games, you would say one of these sides 
Um, the U.S. mostly, to a certain extent, dominated, not so much because they were playing well, but just because the way they matched up against the opposition, um, no, neither of the other two teams were playing all that well either, which just keeps going back to this question that I have, which is it's very hard to tell at this point. You know, we rag on the U.S. for not looking very good, but I'm not sure anyone else looks that good either. France looked great in their opener against the U.S. Um, Australia's looking strong. But the rest of the field, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious to call it weak, but there aren't a lot of teams that are really putting the pieces together right now. And I think it's just going to be a matter of seeing what changes between now and June and what kind of stays the same. Because it is the kind of this thing where you wonder how far the U.S. could simply go by default based on who they play. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you can make an argument for probably the top five to ten teams in the world of, you know, this is why they'll win, this is why they won't. Like, each, each team definitely has a weakness. Um, and it's just a matter of, of getting a good a good draw, uh, getting on, on the right path sometimes, um, mm-hmm. and having a Carly Lloyd day. I mean, I mean, I, I want to point that out. We didn't earlier, but I do want to point out that you got to remember this team was not looking good in 2015 either. I, I don't think anyone really saw that defense coming together like they did and see that midfield being, you know, fixed by Morgan Bryan, who who apparently is not looking likely to even be at the World Cup this time. Did not see Carly Lloyd going nuts. I don't think we saw most of that coming. So there's always, you know, kind of that room for optimism there. Sure. Absolutely. I think the process of putting together a winning World Cup campaign sometimes comes down to more than just playing well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely some some luck and, uh, you know, wake up on the right side of the bed kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one more international tournament I want to bring up, and that is the Cyprus Cup. And I bring it up mostly because poor, poor Mexico, who had an awful CONCACAF tournament, Seems to have continued uh, their their decline, which is just it's just so disappointing because I thought they were on their way up. I thought that their league was going to do good things for them. I didn't think it, it was going to pay off right away, but I thought it was would not go the direction it's going. I think their youth teams have done well, so I don't know what the deal is there. But they were spanked by Italy, who's okay, uh, five to nothing, and then managed only a two one win over Thailand. Um, and U.S. fans will remember pretty well Thailand. It's just not good. Like, um, so. Yeah, yeah, well, that's another interesting one in selection, too, because uh, the Mexico team that played in CONCACAF had a number of dual national players. Like, you remember Katie Johnson and Christina Murillo were both on that squad. Um, and this, I believe, this roster, they didn't take any, any American born players. It was all, I believe, um, or. That might not. Be, they they at least left some of them home. The roster was different, and yeah, it was. Yeah, Bianca Hindinger was another one who was left off. Right. So they it was a different approach, um, and it was definitely buying into the idea of the homegrown league of picking up youth from that and and trying to develop it. Um, don't know if that's going to work, but I I do think that it's it is it's it's like they're it's like they're struggling in different ways with a different team at Cyprus even than they were at CONCACAF and I certainly hope that they find something that that starts working for them yeah and I guess we'll we'll see kind of what they can pull together as the U.S. does have some friendlies with them prior to the World Cup a couple of other things we want to mention before we move on to questions um Yala Averbush did announce that she is uh what we'll call suspending her playing career due to her ongoing battle with 
uh, is ulcerative colitis, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, v- very, very disheartening to hear that. I think she's she's a good player who has put in a significant amount of, of effort and time into to making herself better and just you know managed one game last season, which is she's. She likes to point out when we uh, did a podcast with her at the draft that they lost, but it was North Carolina. Everybody lost North Carolina, not a big deal. But she, you know, and, and I read her, her blog post and she's kind of like, you know, she, she intends to come back. She'd like to come back, but that she may not, you know, and that may be her last game. And that's just a, a very unfortunate way to see a, a player maybe in their career that way. And along the same uh, line, Steph McCaffrey has just announced her retirement from soccer due to a... a it's like a neurological disorder, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure the specifics there. So there's another one who, you know, she she was on the cusp of the U.S. national team at one point, really kind of tumbled after that until she thought she found a really good landing spot in Chicago. And then, you know, was, I think was, I think, struggled at first and then was pulling things together before all this started, but really just never recovered after that. And unfortunately, um, she's decided to end her playing career. The good thing about this is both of those players have put in some effort into finding something to do after soccer, which I think is a big, a big, big, big thing. I don't think we can understate how big that is for players to have a to have a landing spot, to have somewhere to go after their playing career, because we do see players in their careers and their their entire lives have been about soccer um, and then they don't really know what to do. So these two seem a little bit more set up for success. Uh, any thoughts, guys? Yeah, John, do you want to go first? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, um, you know, even even a couple of years ago when Yael launched Techni, um, and I spoke with her and and we kind of went into the numbers a little bit. I mean, even then her company was doing very well. So, you know, two years down the road, I'm sure I'm sure that uh, that she's in good shape there. And obviously her work with the players association has been huge, um, in terms of getting that, you know, closer to becoming a union. Um, Steph has been working with the hidden gems, uh, program, uh, which is, uh, providing some opportunities to communities, which sometimes don't see as much opportunity when it comes to women's soccer. So, um, and you know, it just on a, a personal note, you know, it's, uh, those are two of the players that, I think everybody's always kind of loved watching over the years. Yeah, yeah. Even if you remember her old YouTube videos when she used to, you know, before she had technique, she was just doing that stuff for fun and putting it out there and trying to help people get better and uh, doing something called wall training, which was always really close uh, to, to my heart because that was something I used when I was uh, a player and something I tried to always convince my players to use. Um and, and she was one of those players who stuck it out in between leagues, too, um, while not with, an, with the national team in, in the same type of capacity that those other players were. And, um, those were some pretty thin years. So players had to very much be dedicated to what they were doing and really love, love it to do that. And, you know, it's unfortunate with Steph, too, because and I posted a video on Twitter earlier today just kind of showing some of the moments she had with the U.S. Um, when, when she was when she had first kind of come into the squad for that, that short period. And there, there was a period where she looked like she was going to be this electric winger, uh, you know, on the international level. And, you know, unfortunately it didn't pan out that way for her. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously they were in, in their, in their primes, they were 
exciting players to watch, but you both are totally correct. I think what people probably remember, even remember most right now, because they have sort of been sitting on the sidelines for a while, is their personalities and what else they bring to the game. And I think obviously when the story of the NWSL is is written in 10, 15 years, uh, L. Averbush's contribution to, you know, advocating for players and, and organizing is huge and probably more than we even realize. Um, and yeah, Stephanie McCaffrey, I mean, I always go back to, even when she clearly was out for the long term last year, unlike a lot of players, and, and she, you know, that's not everyone has the means to do this, but she still took a very active role in that locker room. Um, she was there as much as she possibly could be. She, you know, was supporting her teammates in a very active way, even though she couldn't be on the field. And I think that, you know, that's a testament to the kind of teammate that she wanted to be and um, just how much she loved being around the league. So hopefully, uh, you know, she doesn't go, she doesn't go too far and yeah, she has the hidden gems uh, organization as well. So yeah, both, both uh, good people. Quick, I have one uh, thing quick. about Steph real quick before we. Yeah. Cause on. I was going to ask you a question. But go ahead. Oh, <laughs> there's, there's a podcast, Gary Kernin, the uh, Red Stars assistant coach does a podcast called uh, modern soccer, modern modern soccer coach. Um, and he had Stefan as a guest last year at the end of the NWSL season, right before the, uh, semifinal game. And if, if nobody, if people have not had a chance to listen to that, I really recommend it because it really gives you a lot of insight into Steph's career, her youth career, playing in college. There's some really, uh, good nuggets in there. Also then double shout out, uh, if for whatever reason you haven't watched the old, uh, Yell Averbush versus Tobin Heath trick shot battle on YouTube back when they were both uh, both playing with US. That's soccer. a good one. It's a really good one. Yeah. That's a little piece yeah. of history right there. And I was I was gonna say to John when he mentioned, you know, her time on the US team, if if it, he had watched the uh, old uh, being like Carly video that oh, Steph do and, Carly and Sam does. used yeah. do it Carly does you remember that? That yeah. was a good one. Yeah. We will we will always have that. So Best of luck to both of them and, and whatever comes forward next for them. So uh, coming up, we will get to my favorite, always my favorite part of this podcast is the questions. So we'll be right back. All right, welcome back to episode 49 of the Equalizer Podcast. Chelsea, Claire, and John are here to answer your questions, so let's just dive right into them. Um, D-O-Tastic, that's a great name. Uh, I like I like that. Asks, why isn't Jill doing any squad rotation? U.S. only playing the second half of England instead Pew is suddenly starting midfield. We we kind of touched on that um, as far as why she she's not particularly been inclined to ever practice a ton of rotation any any more thoughts on that either one of you no I have no insight into that I don't I don't know I don't even particularly like squad rotation to be honest it's just like I can't wrap my head around the pew over Mewis decision period so that that's the part that I struggle with mm-hmm. yeah I, I, I like some squad rotation just for the fact that I think we've seen players get overworked and I think yeah, there needs to be a balance fair. there. So, 
Uh, Jill A. Cockman says, what is the ideal back line for U.S. Women's National Team can include anyone that hasn't been called up? Uh, Claire, what do you think? Well, certainly seems like it needs Becky Sauerbrunn, doesn't it? Um, I, I don't know. I think, I think right, right, right now, I think probably Davidson should not be in the back line. Um, it, she, it, she's just someone who needs to get her touch back a little bit more, um, the outside, I mean, the outside back issue remains what it is. I think Kelly O'Hara has played really, really well in the last two games, so she would be my starting right back. Um, I guess maybe the big question is right now, do you put Casey Short in at left back instead of Crystal Dunn, um, which is something that that I would try. So I would say, let's say, uh, Casey Short on the left, Dahl Kemper, Sauerbrunn, O'Hara. John, any thoughts no, on that? Okay. I actually, um, I think that's an interesting idea. Given short another look, it's kind of confusing why she's not playing. But uh, for me, the real big question is what happens if O'Hara can't play? Can't go right, Emily you know, Sonnet maybe. Uh, yeah, but, but I think that's great. a big drop. Yeah, you know, she she has struggled. Let's just be honest. Like she gets beat one v one and. The angles aren't the same when you're playing outside back as center back. Listen, she's a great center back. She is not a good outside back at at the international level against top teams. And if if she plays, they're going to get hurt. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think for me, you you picture like a sonnet done back line. That that, that just, right now, the way they're playing right now, that's just asking to be just destroyed on the wings. Mm -hmm. And. My thing is, as I every time I think, okay, it should be Doc Cooper over Davidson, she does something where I'm like, uh, maybe it should be Davidson. I can't seem to settle between the two. Um, obviously, the answer should be actually that Emily Mega should get a look, but <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, and that's also where Davidson is a real wild card for me right now because it will be interesting to see how much she improves once she gets into a professional club environment for um, the first half of the season. Um, but yeah, well, and that's the other weird thing too is Davidson is clearly on the depth chart for outside back too. There were points of both of these games where she slid over to left back, which is wild to me and not something that I had anticipated going into 2019. So not wild in a good way. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. All right. Um, so Carrie Perleski, I don't know if I'm saying that right, um, but because you got a really cute picture of a dog as her icon. Um, <laughs> Last two games, we've seen a lot more long balls than in the past year. No, and that's correct. Is there a reason testing things out, a tactical purpose for the opposition, not wanting to show potential competition, how we plan to play at World Cup? I, I do agree. The, I think it's gone back to more than the last two games. I think we've definitely seen more uh, direct ball. And I think part of that is just that kind of still plays to the U.S. strengths, right? Well, John, you're the, you're the tactical guy. What do you think? Um. I honestly haven't seen it as much as, as, as apparently you have. Um, I, I think I've been impressed the way they, they've been playing through Morgan lately. Um, you know, she checks back into that space. They play to her feet. She lays it off to one of the center mids or an outside back. And then the wings get to go forward into that space. Um, you know, I, I will say against uh, England, I did see Julie Ertz lobbing a lot of balls forward to, to no one in particular. Um, and maybe, uh, <laughs> and maybe Dahl Kemper doing true. that a, a, a That's true. times too, but, 
Um, you could call that pass from Pew back to Franch a long ball, I guess, but it was just in the wrong oh. direction. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know. And you know, when they first switched to the four three three, the the one interesting thing to me about the way Megan Rapinoe plays is it's almost like a, a a gambler. She she likes to sit really high and wide and almost dare the outside back to go forward, knowing that she's not going to track them, and that when they lose the ball, she's going to be wide open for that big ball down the line. Um, and I have not seen as much of that lately as, as when they first did it. Maybe that's just, you know, opponents have kind of adjusted to that. Um, but that was one of the things that made this formation so deadly when they first made that switch. All right. Well, there you have it from the experts. Uh, El Huertita, who is, that is now my nickname for Sophia Huerta. I don't care what anyone tells me unless it's, it means something uh, derogatory asks, what is the formal grievances procedure in the WSL when a player feels she has been emotionally and verbally abused? Um, that is a very serious question. I do not know the answer, but I do know that per Yael Everbush, who is still planning on being very involved with the Players Association, she is not leaving that behind, which I think we can all agree is a very good thing. Uh, she said the Players Association is putting together a, a handbook that includes kind of what to expect in a professional environment, what is, is acceptable and what is not basically, and what your avenues are for when, you know, when it's an issue you need to bring to the team, when it's an issue you need to bring to the league, when it's an issue you need to bring to the players association, when it's an issue, you should probably seek legal counsel. And so I think that that may be something that's addressed in there. Um, do either one of you have, have anything to add to that? No, no, nothing. I'm just glad they're doing it. Yeah. Yadiel and, and the Players Association is doing that because that's the problem with not having a union is that you're really just at the whim of whatever team and, and management system you're under. Yeah, so hopefully not something that ever has to be utilized, but um, I'm sure it's there. So one last question. Kirsty Benedict um, has quite a few. We'll go through them one by one. What do you attribute to Pew's decline and play uh I think Claire did a pretty good job of answering that. What happened to Casey Short? Is she still in the running? Um, She's still on the roster. I mean, yeah, Uh, I think she's probably going to the World Cup. The question is whether or not she'll play at all. I feel like she's going to be like a Whitney Angen. Like, she's there, but not really. Right. So, uh, what about Sonnet over Dahlkemper? I'm assuming this is asking for Sonnet to play back at center back. Um, Personally, I think she's been, can be very good for Portland. I, I was not terribly impressed with her her play on the international level, frankly, at any position, I, I don't think, certainly not an outside back, but I, unless she's, you know, grown a lot since she was last playing center back on the team, I don't see her over, over Dahl Kemper. Um, John, what about you? I, I don't think she's an international outside back. Um, I, I, I would have no problem with her starting a game at center back or two or three and, and seeing what she can give you there. Um, it's, it's very typical for the U S under Ellis to have players coming in and playing out of position. And, uh, I think with a lot of them, it doesn't work. And I would include Sonnet in that category. Yeah. It's the, uh, round peg and square hole kind of thing. I mean, I think over and over again. Yeah. And I think ultimately any, any of those, any of the 
three on the depth chart behind Sauerbrunn, Davidson, Dahlkemper, or Sonnet. I think probably would do fine with Sauerbrunn. Um, they all three of those are very comfortable. Dahlkemper has Abby Ursag. Um, Davidson, you know, Davidson's a little bit more of a wild card because she hasn't been in a professional environment yet. But um, and and Sonnet has Menges, where I think that there are a couple of those players who are very used to playing with a player like Sauerbrunn in sort of that partnership, and they do well with her. The question is, as always, what happens when Sauerbrunn isn't on the field? Yeah, which is we've seen a little bit of, and we don't like it. Yeah. Um, do you think the players like Jill? I, I'm sure that they, they like her just fine, as, as much as any player likes any coach. Um, last one, I've always been curious about how players deal with social media. And I think that's probably a personal preference, depending on the player. Any, any thoughts on that? I, I mean, I think I, we always joke around that there are definitely some players who are more online than others. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it just depends on the player's personality. Um, and I, I, I would say I do think it's interesting that even going back to talking about McCaffrey and Averbush about how there are some players that are really, really good at um, playing soccer and then that's really kind of their focus and their interest. And then it is always interesting when other other players have uh, other stuff going on and, and let people in on that, too, as people. Yeah, frankly, one of my favorite things about Steph McCaffrey has always been her roasting her mom <laughs> on social media. Um <laughs> Who seems to be, to give her credit, seems to be a very good sport about it. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that is all for this week. Um, so next week we'll, we'll wrap up all these international tournaments, including who takes home that lovely, lovely trophy from the 2019 She Believes Cup. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, this has been Chelsea Bush, Claire Watkins, and John Halloran. Um, you have been listening to the Equalizer podcast. Thank you for listening to the Equalizer podcast. The views and opinions expressed are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Equalizer Soccer. We thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.